This episode is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a bit different than most summers. We're staying at home for the most part, and we're finding ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players, ages 10 and up, although younger kids can play with adult guidance. It is a great way to keep families engaged in off screens, even if it's just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. And it's really easy to pick up. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of our podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And today we have a super rad lady on the podcast to tell us all about the new book she has written that you need to get in your hands or on your device ASAP. Yeah, and that is award-winning journalist Jessica Bennett. And she's written a fabulous new book, Feminist Fight Club, An Office Survival Manual for a Sexist Workplace. Asterisk. Uh, this book is 21% more expensive for dudes. That's oh. not necessarily an official part of the title, but there is an asterisk on the front cover with a little disclaimer. Love a good gender wage gap joke. Yeah. Oh, I, I appreciate it. And if that title sounds familiar, it might be because you follow us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, where we posted a while back our uh, galley copy of Feminist Fight Club, uh, which made us feel very special that we got an advanced copy and we wanted to share it with you all. And judging by the Instagram excitement, <laughs> y'all are pumped to check this book out. And I'm really pumped that we got to talk to Jessica Bennett, who is a friend of the show and whom we've cited so many times on the podcast. And before we get into our chat with her about the Feminist Fight Club, I got to tell a little story, Caroline. <laughs> yep, I love the story. Story okay. time. Okay, so about six years ago, we received a letter from a listener in New York who was this fabulous, hilarious woman who uh, was responding to something I'd said about feeling guilty about watching Bravo's Millionaire Matchmaker. And she was just a delight and made me laugh. And it was podcast internet friendship at first email. Is that what you call them? So time went on and I was heading up to New York and this lovely lady said, hey, when you're up here, I'm actually hosting a little secret get together of women I know who are also in media. And we talk about sexism in the workplace and aspirations and kind of workplace consciousness raising in a way. And I was extremely flattered and also incredibly intimidated um, <laughs> because, you know, I'm this podcaster <laughs> from Atlanta going up to, you know, hang out and, and eat dinner with uh, all of these badass go-getters. 
And, uh, long- was there, was there a little bit of imposter syndrome at work about uh, your own awesomeness? Oh my God. I was head to toe imposter syndrome. <laughs> and I also made the mistake of wearing these really tall heels, which on my already tall body made me all of <laughs> six foot two. And in small New York apartments, I learned that night when you are towering above the rest of the group, but you're also feeling overwhelmed with imposterism <laughs> and no one knows who you are, it can really <laughs> amplify one's social anxiety. I was going to say, you just end up in the fetal position in the bathroom. Pretty or... much. <laughs> uh, in fact, actually, I got uh, uh, lost in the bathroom at one point. It was it was just a hot mess. I think I basically just blacked out, um, had an insecurity blackout, and then yeah. arrived on the subway like two and a half hours later. We've all been there. You're like, for some reason, I'm not hungry anymore. But I also want to throw up. I don't know where I've been. And I think I've had four glasses of Pinot Grigio. <laughs> so unbeknownst to me, uh, this was what would become the feminist fight club that Jessica Bennett centers this office place manual around. And I'm so honored to, I guess, technically be a member of this fight club, Caroline. I'm like a, I'm like an uh, adjacent member. You're a member by proxy? Yeah. Yes, that, that's how that works. I vote, I vote long distance when I need to mail in my vote for leadership. <laughs> well, and in the six years since, it's been amazing to watch these women's careers develop and also how, you know, they've been extremely supportive of stuff mom never told you over the years as well, Jessica Bennett in particular. Um, so it's, uh, so it's just exciting to see all of our real world situations now getting applied to all of these tactics and strategies and hilarious puns that Jessica has compiled that can help anybody in the workplace. So with that, we're going to kick off the conversation with Jessica talking about the origins of that first feminist fight club. I'm a journalist. I write primarily for the New York Times and I cover a lot about gender issues and then occasionally blending that with modern culture, pop culture and trends that range from the tyranny of resting bitch face to the plight of female pot entrepreneurs. (laughs) So try to keep it serious, but also fun. And the idea was essentially that I think there's a lot out there and a lot of conversation about gender issues. And there are some really great books written by really inspiring women. And then there are also a lot of fun, youthful, millennial-style books that are written as handbooks, the hipster handbook, the zombie survival guide, uh, these types. And what I wanted to do was blend the two, create something that was smart and had real advice that was rooted in research and backed up by fact, but also was really easy to digest. It was the kind of thing you could shove in your purse, maybe even stuff in your bra, tear out a couple of pages, put them in there when you're going in to ask for a raise, and flip, essentially, to the section that you needed the advice on. And so that was the inspiration for the manual style, and I wanted to kind of take that very masculine art of war, Mortal Kombat game type style and turn it on its head to feminize it. And then, of course, there's a story of the Fight Club, which, as you mentioned, you may 
or may not be a member of. Um, and this is the real life group of women who've been meeting for almost the past decade talking about our career trajectories and the struggles we faced and sharing with each other a lot of tips that we learned along the way. Now, you go into more detail on the, the origin story of the Feminist Fight Club, which is uh, one of my favorite <laughs> favorite stories of women coming together. Um, maybe, like you said, because I may or may not be a member of said Feminist Fight Club. Um, but for listeners who haven't read the book, can you talk about the very first meeting? Like, how how did it happen? How does one start a fight club? Well, so the way that it happened for this group was that there were a lot of things happening in the culture that made it kind of a perfect storm of us feeling like we needed to do something. So I was in Newsweek at the time as a junior reporter and was really feeling like I was struggling to get ahead. Um, The men that I'd come up with were getting promoted more quickly than I was. I would pitch stories and they would get rejected, but then I would notice that they would be in the magazine under somebody else's byline I was facing a lot of frustrations and I started talking with other women in the office who were feeling the same thing. This was at the time in late 2009, early 2010, when the David Letterman sex scandal had just happened. He'd been sleeping with his assistant. There was a gender discrimination lawsuit at the New York Post and this giant report had come out from from the Shriver Foundation run by Maria Shriver pointing to the fact that while we have made great strides in some places, we were not anywhere near gender equality. So it felt a bit like a perfect storm. And the original Fight Club members, of which I was not one of the three, started meeting in their workplace, which was another media company. And they would gather often in their own offices and sometimes outside of the office, often at a midtown McDonald's over French fries and milkshakes and Diet Coke. And they ultimately came to the conclusion that they needed to do something. They were feeling really frustrated. They felt stifled. They felt stuck. They didn't know what to do. But what they could do was form a group and talk about these issues. Which sounds a lot like almost old school second wave consciousness raising happening. Exactly. And I think that that's essentially what we were doing. You know, we were meeting every month or few months. We were sitting around in a circle. We were eating snacks and drinking wine. And we were talking about the struggles we faced. And we would literally go around the circle, much like old school consciousness raising groups did. The difference was we didn't necessarily call it that. It was a modern version, but it employed many of the same tactics. And I think that the idea of raising consciousness, of realizing that this wasn't an individual problem, but a collective one, was ultimately one of the purposes that the club served. Well, and something that's coming to mind as you're talking about this is how one thing that we've noticed with our work through Stuff Mom Never Told You, especially when we go out and talk to younger audiences, is how the workplace is usually, for for a lot of women, their first face-to-face, day-to-day confrontation with sexism. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if if that's part, if you think that that's common for a lot of women, too, where... Um, you get your job and that's terrific. But then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, no, stuff is really screwed up here. 
Right, right. I mean, that was certainly my experience and the data would back that up. You know, women excel in school. They're graduating from college in higher numbers. They're kind of outpacing their male peers at every turn. They're getting more advanced degrees. And then we leave academia and we go to the workplace and it's not this egalitarian utopia. We're not getting ahead at the same rate. And so for me, you know, I had a privileged upbringing. I grew up in Seattle. It's sort of a liberal utopia. My parents are feminists. Everyone always told me I could accomplish whatever I wanted. And so I think in a way, because of that, I didn't realize that feminism was something that I even needed or identified with. And it wasn't until I got to the workforce and began to experience these issues that I was like, wait, oh, like this is what people talk about. This is this thing that people talk about. And is it sexism? Like, is that really what this is? And it took me a while to actually get to the conclusion that, yes, it was. It was a systemic issue and it's still one that exists. Well, and that's something that jumped out to me early in the book where you say that recognizing sexism is harder than it used to be. Um, so why is that, do you think? Like, and, and sort of what does that mean that we need to be on the lookout for? Right. You know, I once had this conversation with Gail Collins, who's the New York Times opinion writer, who has a number of amazing books about this issue. And she said something to the effect of, we were talking about generational differences. And she said, you know, sexism of my generation was worse in many ways. It was more overt, but at least you knew it when you saw it. And that really resonated with me because while our generation is not experiencing help wanted ads segregated by gender or actually being smacked on the ass in an office environment and it being okay or accepted, we face things that have a subtlety to them. And as a result, it's hard to know, is it sexism or is it just me? So, for example, being interrupted in a meeting. Women are twice as likely to be interrupted in meetings as men. And this happens all the time. This has been happening for my entire career. And it took me a long time to realize that maybe this is actually a product of male privilege and of a patriarchal system in which men believe that they are entitled to speak more frequently. You know, things like having your ideas attributed to somebody else. This is also statistically proven. It happens commonly with women. And these things, I, I've heard it called sexism by a thousand small cuts. They're small things and taken individually, they can seem like not that big a deal. But when you experience this, all of these things over time, collectively, they can be really fatal. Well, and a lot of these conversations around uh, especially the gender wage gap and more of the, the financial manifestations of workplace sexism really start with negotiation, the whole salary negotiation issue. And for so long, the, you know, um, abiding claim was that, well, women just aren't asking for money and that's the problem but (laughs) there's so much more nuance to this negotiation issue so could you talk a little bit about that yeah you know with all of this stuff there's so much nuance to it as you mentioned and even the negotiation thing so yeah we finally realized over the past few years that women aren't asking as often. And so we've been trying to solve that. And that's what I write in the book. Well, last week, a study came out saying that actually women are negotiating. They're, in fact, negotiating in equal 
numbers to men. So great. That's a good thing. We were halfway there, but the caveat is that they're still not getting raises with the same frequency. So yes, you can tell women to negotiate. You can encourage them to do so, but it's not that simple. They have to be able to navigate these really complicated and deeply rooted biases when they get there. And some of those say that, you know, when a woman asks for a raise, she's more likely to be deemed pushy. She's going to be less liked when she does so. And she's less likely to get the raise than a man who is asking. Another bit of research advises that women should actually smile when they go in to negotiate because women are expected to be nurturing and maternal and nice. And so if you play into that stereotype, you're actually more likely to be successful when you ask. So it was tricky writing this chapter because I didn't want to advise people to play into gender stereotypes. But by the same token, if smiling when you go in to ask for the raise is going to get you the money and get you in power, and then you can lift other women up along with you, then I think it goes towards this larger goal of smashing down patriarchy and taking over. But these things are really tricky. They're very nuanced, and there's a lot of subtlety to them. Well, and speaking of smiling, what would you say to someone listening and thinking, oh, but I'm really over being expected to smile all the time, especially for, you know, women who are working in service industry jobs. I've heard this from women in healthcare a lot, being asked by patients, you know, why aren't you smiling? What would you say to that? I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton just experienced this with the head of the RNC. Like, contrary to popular belief, women are not actually born with smiles on their faces and we are not required to smile. However, there is this cultural expectation that we should be smiling all the time. And if we're not, oh, then we have resting bitch face. (laughs) Then we're a bitch. Whereas the exact same facial expression on a man would simply be viewed as serious or authoritative. So there's a complete double standard when we talk about this. At the same time, if I have to grin and bear it literally when I'm walking in to ask for a raise and it's going to get me the money so I can get in power, then on some level, I'm just like, F- it, I'm going to do it. Now, not to get too personal, Jessica, but do you have, uh, like I do, resting bitch face? I didn't know that I had resting bitch face until I was doing a television interview for an article I'd written and somebody screenshotted my face on the screen and it in fact ended up on Wikipedia as literally the face of resting bitch face, the definition. No. So turns out I, I do have resting bitch face, but I'm trying to just own it. Yeah. I mean, you could probably trademark that resting bitch face then. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My boyfriend has it as his, as my icon when I call him. (laughs) Listeners, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Listen, we know that posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates all the time. And if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can with ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter lets you post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. And you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. 
So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash women. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash women. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash women. One thing I've been noticing more conversation around in terms of what women can pay more attention to in the workplace, things we have some uh, more leverage over than perhaps uh, controlling all the variables in negotiation situations is all of the unpaid labor that we tend to do, women in particular. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, you talk a bit about how the, our whole overwork culture that a lot of us are in right now um, does not benefit women as much as men. Um, and also, too, when we're in the office in nine to five, we tend to even be doing office housework. So what's going on with all of this um, on the clock, but almost off the clock work that we're doing? Right. Yeah, I think this comes from two angles. So on the one hand, there's what I call in the book, the stenographer. And this is the guy who asks you to take the notes in the meeting or grab the coffee and just instinctively turns to a woman to do these tasks. And what the research shows is that women are more likely to be tasked with these things. They're more likely to be asked to do them. And at the same time, they are also more likely to volunteer. So the reality is if you're always taking the notes in the meeting, then you're probably not putting forth the ideas. And if you're always grabbing coffee, then you're missing valuable FaceTime. And if you're the one who has to plan the company holiday party or brings cupcakes for the birthdays, it's taking time away from the higher productivity tasks that may get you noticed. So of course, all of this is within the framework of assuming that a person wants to get ahead at work and maybe not everybody does. But at the same time, most people I think would probably prefer to do more stimulating work than the menial tasks. And this is across the board. You know, this is not just in an office environment. This happens. You can be an hourly worker in a restaurant and still be the one asked to marry the ketchups. Maybe that's industry speak from my waitress days, marry the ketchups or roll the napkins. Like, This stuff is taking time away from when you could be bringing in tips. And so I think that it it relates to the overwork culture in the sense that you spend hours doing this small stuff and then you still have to do the regular work, the real job. And so at the end of the day, you're working harder. And for women who have children, they're already taking on the quote unquote mother load of tasks at home. That's just statistically proven. So at the end of the day, like, how could you not be exhausted? You're doing the office housework, you're doing the actual housework, and you're doing your real job. So especially for someone in more of a service industry position who, you know, doesn't have a lot of power in the workplace or even for, you know, someone in a a traditional office, Mm -hmm. if they don't roll the silverware or they don't bring the coffee, then... Who's going to, you know what I mean? Like, how do you delegate those tasks out to ensure that you're not doing all of this useless work all the time? Right. 
I mean, one really simple thing to do is creating kind of a spreadsheet type list or creating a rotating system for people to do them. And I think anyone can probably speak up and suggest that. Like, let's take turns. You know, it's like the old chore chart that you had when you were a kid. And that is one really simple way to do it. And I don't think you have to be in a power position to suggest that. If you are in a power position, it's important that you make sure that these things are being distributed equally because you don't want the women to get stuck with it. You know, there's like the passive aggressive approach, which is like when you'll get asked to do the thing you're like, oh, but what about Josh over here? Like, Josh is great at taking notes. So there's that. And then I've also heard of people taking the direct approach, and this is, again, in an office environment, but specifically saying when they're in a meeting that is male-dominated, and my one friend who frequently does this happens to be a woman of color, saying directly, guys, you cannot ask the one person of color and the one woman in this room to take the notes, and just approaching the elephant in the room and being direct about it. So I think that with all of the advice in this book, nothing is going to work for every situation. So I've tried to give the direct approach, the indirect approach, the humorous approach, and people can kind of choose what might work best for them. Well, that also has me wondering that uh, considering how more and more people are working freelance or on a contract basis, sort of being their office of one, um, do you think that these situations apply? I mean, I work from home as a freelancer, and most of my work is done over email these days. And I find myself dealing with this stuff constantly. Like, I'm not getting audibly interrupted, but I notice subtle things like I respond to emails in the most passive way possible saying, I feel like, and using language and exclamation points to try to soften what I'm actually trying to say. Whereas men, I don't think do that with the same frequency. So the idea of free work and being asked to do free work again, that's, that's hugely common when you're a sole contractor or an independent employed person because you have to decide what's worth it for you. And, you know, journalism, it's like everyone's asking you to write for free all the time and you have to decide like when it's worth it for you. Like what's the return on the investment? ROI, I hate that term. It's so corporate, but I actually find myself asking like, what's a ROI on this? Is it worth it for me to do this thing for free? Or is it worth it for me to grant this favor? Has this person done something for me in the past or do I just believe in this cause? So a lot of it is just weighing things individually, but thinking strategically about it. So I want to go back to what you said about emailing and and using that hedging language of just actually, um, because this is, I, I think, such a huge issue for um, women today in the workplace. There have been so many conversations about it, so many you know, viral pieces about words and phrases that we shouldn't use as women that are undercutting our authority. But on the flip side of that, there have been a lot of arguments that, hey, people just need to get used to the way women are talking. Right. So how do we how do we navigate through this professional speech and gender quagmire? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. I was going to say a <laughs> show, um, but it's impossible. This is impossible to navigate. And as I was researching this chapter, there's a chapter on speech. Um, it's called Get Your Speak On, the cluster of speaking while female. And that is basically what it is. It's a cluster because 
from every avenue, we have people telling us that we shouldn't say like so much or the tone of our voice isn't working. We are using up talk, which is when you end your statements in a question. And certainly there are cases and research has shown that these things can undermine you in a workplace. They can undermine your confidence and they make, can make it sound like you don't know what you're talking about. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that we're still judging all of this by a male standard. Like that, you may think that somebody sounds like a valley girl, but in relation to what? In relation to men. So my feeling is that if since the dawn of time women had been running things, then actually maybe we'd be telling men that they should insert more upspeak into the way they talk. And it's not just that these are all learned behaviors. Women actually do lead linguistic trends. Like we set the trends as they exist in the modern culture. And we, the research shows that we actually do more creative things with the way we talk and teen girls. In fact, if you want to learn about speech, just look at teen girls, like eventually we'll all be emojiing in the same way they are speaking gifts or whatever it may be. But I think that it's important to weigh these things, knowing that most of us are in male dominated fields, so they will be interpreted a certain way and recognizing that and perhaps trying to solve for it. But also knowing that, you know, at the end of the day, like just speak the way you want to speak. Like we can't constantly be changing the way we talk to fit into some larger structure. How can women perhaps listen to women better and also have each other's back better? Right. I mean, this is something that I struggle with, too. And it's not just that women are being competitive with each other. This is a learned behavior. And what helped me was understanding where it came from. So I'll just try to explain that. Men have been running things in the workplace forever. And so what that led to was competition, competition among women for perhaps the one place at the table or the one spot at the top or the one position in whatever workplace it was. And because there were so few positions, of course you felt you needed to elbow the woman next to you because you were competing for the same job. My feeling is that if we are able to equalize the workplace and there are an equal level of men and women, then there will still be competition, but it will be equal opportunist competition. You will be competing the same amount against the men as you are as the women. And so I think that we may not even realize it, but we have internalized that belief. And that is part of the reason why we are so competitive with other women. And I find myself doing this so often. Immediately, if there's another woman who is pitching a story or writing about a topic that's similar to what I'm writing about, I will get competitive. And what I've tried to do is just sort of stop myself for a moment and take a step back and say, why am I being competitive with this person? Is there a way to actually become allies and help each other? And as you know, we had these sort of silly rules to the fight club, but the most important one was treating other women as allies, not enemies. And I repeat that to myself constantly because I still need to hear it sometimes. But I think that knowing that we've all been in that position, if 95 of us, 90, if 95 percent of us have felt undercut by other women, then most of us have probably been the person doing the undercutting. So we have to recognize that we're all in this together and that probably each of us has been part of the problem at one point or another. (laughs) 
Caroline, as you and I both know well, to-do lists can seem out of control. There's so much stuff mom never told you to do and so little time to do it. But there's one thing we can check off our to-do list, and that is going to the post office thanks to Stamps.com. Because with Stamps.com, we can buy and print official U.S. postage right from our own computers and printers. Stamps.com will even send us a digital scale automatically calculating the exact postage we need for any letter or package and any class of mail. That's right. You can do everything right from your desk with Stamps.com. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF to get a special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF. And now, back to the show. A lot of this revolves around mindfulness, really, as we are going through our professional lives in terms of helping other women and sort of keeping our own um, unconscious biases in check. Um, and it almost sounds exhausting, all of, all of these things that we have to do. Yes. I mean, it is. It is. And I think that as I was writing the book, you know, providing these battle tactics, but then saying like, oh, well, actually, if you use this one, then maybe you should tweak it to t- do it this way. And it's like, it's enough to make your brain explode. So the way that I try to think about this without want to throw, want, without wanting to throw myself out my window all day long is I try to have fun with it. And that's where the thinking behind the playfulness with the book comes. There are illustrations, there are Mad Libs. There's profiles of feminist fight clubs throughout history at the end. And I just try to laugh. I try to use humor as a way into these issues and something that can keep me going and also open up the conversation to a larger audience because it's easy to get depressed. Like (laughs) this shit is hard and I don't have a perfect answer, but knowing that we're all in it together and maybe we can laugh about it a little bit has helped. Like fighting patriarchy can actually be fun. And so I think we should try to do that more often. Well, and I also appreciate the balance of the book being completely hilarious and also full of puns. And for anyone who listens to this podcast knows I love a good pun. Um, (laughs) But also it gives readers a permission to be angry, which we don't hear very much at all, I feel like, as women. Like, yeah, go into the office and get pissed. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, I'm pissed. I'm angry. Um, I can still laugh about it. Like, I'm not a man hater. I believe that men are our allies. But like, I'm angry. And I think that is okay. And from a very, from the standpoint of purely marketing a book and needing to know that you have to sell this thing and you need to get a publisher's buy-in for it. I was nervous first and foremost about the title. It is aggressive. It is a fight title. And I wasn't sure that that would go over well, but in the end it did. And it's so rare. I think that like you said, women are given permission to be angry. And in so many cases when talking about this subject, 
you know, it's all clouded in this empowerment speak. We have to be so positive and it's all about inspiration and empowerment. Well, okay, fine. That's not bad. But also we can be a little bit pissed and anger can be a very useful emotion. This is what my therapist tells me. (laughs) Anger can be a very useful emotion towards enacting change because it motivates you. For women of color, however, they're going to be judged differently if they're perceived as angry. And that is something that you talk about in the book. And I also appreciate how you have brought a very intersectional focus um, to the advice that you give. So I guess I'm wondering whether all of these fantastic tips and strategies that you lay out are potentially more challenging for people who are not white, able-bodied, cisgender, straight, college-educated women like you and I to uh, to follow and enact. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And especially to your anger point, you know, there's so many cases where the research looks at women as a whole, but that is probably mostly white women. And it says that you will be perceived as aggressive or bossy in a certain situation if you ask for something. Well, that is, of course, doubly difficult if you are a woman of color. And if you're an African-American woman, you always have that fear of being perceived as the angry black woman. And so it's really tough. There needs to be more research in this realm. And I wanted to make sure that every single piece of advice I gave in this book was rooted in data and research because I come from a journalistic background and I don't believe in just giving bullshit advice. So I hired a Harvard researcher to help me and we literally sifted through all of the studies that exist out there and I had her help me to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And the reality is there is not enough research on women of color. Things look at women as a whole, but you can imagine that most of that is white women. And so I think that certainly some of these things are going to be much more difficult if you're a person of color, and that needs to be taken into account. I also think that this is a subject we are talking about more these days, and there is new research coming out. I saw a study recently about how African-American women are actually more ambitious than their white counterparts. And so the more we talk about it, the more we research it, then hopefully the more battle tactics we can come up with that are specific to them, because you can't really solve all of these problems with a one size fits all approach. That's just not the way the world works. So, you know, I've done my best while trying not to white explain what women of color should do in these scenarios while also looking at all of the research. But at the same time, I don't have all the answers and there needs to be more. Yeah, I mean, and it also seems like a lot of this could uh, apply pretty equally to men of color as well, who, at least from what I see, are rarely spotlighted in these kinds of studies. Totally. And all of the stuff about imposter syndrome like that, for example, that affects people of color as with just as high rates as it affects women. And the idea is that It's impacting anyone who has the pressure of being a first. Things like stereotype threat. You know, a lot of these issues really do affect both women and people of color. And so some of these tactics, you know, there are some like writing affirmations or power posing to increase your confidence that can work for anybody. The research sucks. (laughs) It really does. Um, So what... Stat. You've been knee deep in research and studies, which Caroline and I love to do here on the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
what stat would you throw out at a dude who is like, sexism? That's, that's all fake. You're so emotional. Are you on your period? <laughs> so while I was writing this book, I had this 1970 anthology sitting on my desk that was written by Robin Morgan. It's called Sisterhood is Powerful. It's amazing and retro, and it inspired me so much. One of the things she has in that book is a section called Verbal Karate. And Verbal Karate is just a list of statistics. And I have learned over time that people cannot argue with statistics. So while you can try to appeal to a man or a woman who doesn't believe this is an issue by saying this is the right thing to do, you know, don't you want equality between men and women, you can also hit them with Verbal Karate or Statistical Karate, which is, guess what? Companies are more successful, more profitable, and more collaborative when they have women in power. Our economy would be better off if there were an equal number of men and women in positions of power, in politics, and in businesses. The GDP would actually rise by 26% were there gender equality. So there are all these stats that you really cannot argue with. And so I try to just throw those in their faces and then sit back and like manspread. <laughs> Oh my God. I love it so much. Um, <laughs> well, especially as someone who has spent so long reporting on uh, issues related to gender and feminism, was there anything that especially surprised you that you were really not expecting um, in the process of researching for and writing the book? You know, none of the stats really surprised me. It, it was surprising to me that nobody had gone through and distilled the information in a way that could be really tactical because a lot, none of this research is new. You know, a lot of it has been out there, but it's very academic. It's hard to sift through. And so a lot of what I spent time doing was just reading studies and trying to translate it into colloquial language and then like inserting a bunch of cheesy puns. But that, and also learning about these underground women's collectives of the past. You know, I have a section at the end of the book that's called Feminist Fight Clubs of Yore. And I spent a lot of time just digging through old manifestos from the 1970s and interviewing women who had been involved in the women's movement and learning about all of these amazing underground collectives that are not in the history books. You know, groups that banded together to fight for the rights of women in color in prisons. There was a group called the Sojourner Truth Disciples. You know, women like Witch, the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, which is a name that they could never get away with today. But they used to stage all of these crazy protests. They glued shut the doors to the New York Stock Exchange one time and called the media so that they would be there when the Wall Street bankers would show up and not be able to open them. You know, all of these really colorful protests that combined both humor and action. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what I hope that this book does. It provides humor, but it also provides action. I think it absolutely does. Um, and uh, while I am biased, I'm also a journalist, too. So there's my objectivity. Um, <laughs> so aside from our original Feminist Fight Club, uh, which one of those is uh, nearest and dearest to your heart or that you've, you drew the most inspiration from? I did really love Witch because they were so colorful. They also released 100 white mice into a bridal fair in 
Times Square in the 1970s, which I thought was hilarious. And they would go into Playboy clubs, which were popular at the time, and they would put this liquid cement in their purse. They would fill their purses with liquid cement, and it was a fast-drying cement, so they would rush into the ladies' bathroom and dump it down the toilets and clog up the toilets. So I love the women of which... Um, there are the lesbian Avengers who tried to bring attention to lesbian causes in the early 1980s. And they would go into Central Park and they would hand out Hershey's kisses that would say, you've been kissed by a lesbian. Oh um, and then there's the modern day clubs that I found out about, like the Brujas, which are this group of Latina skaters in the Bronx who are trying to, you know, break down male dominated skate culture and, and are amazing. Um, so those are a few of my favorites, but there's lots more. <laughs> so is there anything that I haven't asked you about um, that you would like to make sure that listeners know about the book before we wrap up? I think just that, you know, this is the story of my our feminist fight club, but anyone can start a fight club. There's no rules. You can make, what you want of it. It doesn't have to be women all in your same industry or in your workplace. And we're so much stronger together. So, you know, forming a fight club, I think can be fun, but also, you know, that these women have your back. What if guys want to join a feminist fight club? I, I would love for there to be an all male feminist fight club. Um, but yeah, invite men to join your feminist fight club. Like, Anyone who believes in equality is going to be an ally. And I think we should welcome them all, despite the fact that they have to pay more for the book. Well, I'm really excited to hear about all of the feminist fight clubs that people listening are about to go off and start. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica, thanks so much for coming on the show. And please tell us where you can find more about the book, order the book uh, and learn more about you. You can go to feministfightclub.com and there's all sorts of information there. Or you can find us on Instagram. We post a new feminist fight club from history every Friday, fight club Friday at feminist fight club. Well, Jessica, thanks so much. Thank you. So thank you so much to the absolutely delightful and badass Jessica Bennett for talking with us and sharing her awesomeness with our sneaky audience. So thank you so much to the absolutely delightful and badass Jessica Bennett for talking with us and sharing her awesomeness with our sminty audience. I hope you guys really enjoyed that interview as much as we did. And if you did enjoy it as much as we did, you should look for Jessica online. You can find more about her book Again, at feministfightclub.com. And of book. course, They're you can find it Instagram at any of your Facebook massive and in addition to providing all the info you need to get yourself um, you a copy also of find her on Twitter at um, Jessica and her book. team are doing a fabulous job too of really collecting related news and current events happening around sexism and the workplace and just uh, feminist culture in general. So be sure to check out everything that she and Feminist Fight Club are doing. So with that, listeners, we're curious to know if you have a Feminist Fight Club of your own or if this is something it sounds like you could seriously use in your life. Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more 
about fighting the man or the whoa man. I don't know. Head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. So you can learn even more about fighting the man or the poor man. I don't know. Head on over to stuff and I'll never told you. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated? at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, at the persistence of systemic racism, you're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Gold Club was the top strip club in Atlanta in the 1990s, with patrons like Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Madonna, the King of Sweden. But in 2001, the club was put on trial with charges of prostitution, extortion, credit card fraud, racketeering, and an affiliation with the mob. I'm journalist Christina Lee, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of the Gold Club scandal, from the booty and bubbly to the deceit and courtroom drama. Listen to Racket Inside the Gold Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.